Welcome to the Arab Spring, a history. Episode 2, Ottoman Ruins. In the early summer of 2013, the world's attention turned to Turkey, as the country attempted to deal with protesters. While nominally about environmental concerns in the city of Istanbul, the protests reflect something much deeper. The Economist for the week beginning June 8th ran with Dictator or Sultan on the front cover. This begins to get into the real heart of the issue. Turkey is struggling with what it wants to be, and is divided between an Islamist and secular approach. This all goes back to the man who created the secular Republic of Turkey, Kemal Ataturk. Today, we begin the story of how the Ottoman Empire fell, and how Turkey rose from the ashes against all the odds. It is honestly a miracle that Turkey was formed at all. We've set the scene in 1900, but we need to go back slightly further to begin our narrative, to 1876. The Ottoman Empire of 1876 was being ravaged by all the problems we mentioned last week. The lack of central power over the empire, territory slipping away, out-of-date military, and the dominance of Western powers through the capitulations. My apologies for calling them concessions last week. The Western powers were intervening in aspects of Ottoman life, such as the government of Lebanon. Religious reasons were also used for intervention, as groups received foreign protectors. France for Roman Catholics, Russia for Orthodox, Britain for Jerez and Jews, while American missionaries promoted Protestantism, spreading Western culture. In this grim atmosphere for the Ottomans, combined with the despotism of the Sultan Abdul Hamid II, there were some dissidents, young intellectuals who wanted to save the Ottoman Empire by adopting some aspects of Western life. For instance, representative government, a constitution, and rule by the fairness of law than the whims of a despot. These people are known as the Young Ottomans. Not wanting to cause trouble, he was new to the throne, Abdul Hamid relented and made reforms, but this changed very quickly, as one of many wars with Russia broke out. For full coverage of that war, Check out the When Diplomacy Fails episode, all about the Russo-Turkish War of 1876. This is not going to be the last time, particularly in these early episodes, 
as I recommend you listen to When Diplomacy Fails. But Zach does a really great show, and a lot of it is relevant to these years. We're not particularly interested in how the war broke out or what happened in it, but what is important for us is that Abdul Hamid used the opportunity to take a more authoritarian approach. The Liberals were not wiped out by Abdul Hamid, though I'm sure he would have liked that to happen. Instead, they were forced either abroad or underground, where they regrouped as the Young Turks and formed a secret society, the Committee of Union and Progress, or for short, the CUP. The CUP had several goals. It wanted equality for all peoples within the empire, not just the Turks. You need to think of how cosmopolitan the Ottoman Empire was. It included Turks, Kurds, Greeks, Jews, Bosnians, Serbs, Bulgarians, Croats and Arabs, to name some of the major ethnic groups. Under the Sultans, non-Muslim citizens had been treated like second-class citizens. They did not have all the legal privileges held by Muslims, and unlike Muslims, had to pay tax. This resulted, naturally, in non-Muslims supporting the CUP. The other group strongly in favour of the CUP, and whose members would soon dominate it, was the army officers. Specifically, the Macedonian army located at Salonika, the modern Thessaloniki in northern Greece. Here, such prominent figures as Enver Bey, Jamal Pasha and Mustafa Kemal would join. While it was an organisation which was heavily supported by minorities, receiving support in the hierarchy of the Ottoman army, I hear you ask. And that is a very good question. The answer is that the Ottoman Empire was doing appallingly. Wars in the Balkans saw the new states taking more and more territory from the Ottomans, with Serbia, Greece, Romania, Bulgaria and Montenegro all doing very well. The army officers saw the way things were going, and were determined to stop it. The Young Turks made an attempted coup in 1896. They failed to take power, but sincerely spooked the Sultan. As many autocrats are, Abdul Hamid was nervous about others taking his power, and so he had an extensive spy network. Yet he had no warning about the 1896 coup. If his spy network hadn't picked up something this big, just what else was he missing? As the army officers really began joining the movement now, talk began about reviving the assembly which had so briefly existed in 1876, a process sped up by an event which would have huge implications around the world. In 1908, the British King and Russian Tsar met. For the last hundred years or so, Russia and Britain had been fierce rivals, particularly in Asia. Russia wanted a warm water port, so was pushing south into Persia to try and get access to the Persian Gulf, and had been pushing to get control of Constantinople, the glittering capital 
of the Ottoman Empire, which would give the Russians direct access to the Mediterranean without having to go through foreign ports. Both of these aims put her at odds with Britain, who wanted to protect her route to India. Britain was taking increasingly more imperialistic steps to keep the route to India open, becoming very involved in Persian politics, and taking control of Egypt. She did not want Russia to interfere with this, and was trying to keep a balance of power within Europe to prevent war. Crucial to this was keeping the Ottomans in place. But this world order was changing. There was a greater threat to Britain and Russia on the horizon. A powerful Germany who had been aggressively expanding and building up her naval arsenal. Britain and Russia both felt threatened. War was coming to Europe. It was simply a matter of time. As Britain and Russia took a more friendly relationship, the rumour was that Britain was willing to concede Ottoman control of Constantinople for help in the coming conflicts to keep German attention divided, and that the two were planning to divide Ottoman territory between them. Obviously, they couldn't just state such blatantly imperialistic sentiments. It would outrage opinion. They needed an excuse. A reason. A casus belli. That's how these things work. The reason it was rumoured that would be given is that they would liberate the Empire's non-Muslims from Ottoman suppression. If this happened, the CUP would lose its popular support, and so couldn't afford to wait. It had to act now. Note that this means they were not necessarily bothered about minorities' rights. They wanted it, but only if they would get the credit. They pushed and pushed the Sultan, and got their way. In July 1908, a constitution was granted, and elections were held later that year, for an assembly with 280 members, including 30 Christians. So, the Ottomans finally had a representative assembly, and something resembling equal rights for the oppressed minorities. Was this a good thing? No, not really. You see, the various Christian nations surrounding the Ottomans liked things just as they were, with the Ottomans nice and weak. The oppressed minorities would also give them a decent excuse to intervene, if they wanted, but I digress. They were threatened by the possibility of a more united and powerful Ottoman Empire that might be able to dominate them again. So, they struck immediately. Greece annexed Crete. Austria-Hungary annexed Bosnia-Herzegovina, and Bulgaria annexed Eastern Rumelia. This takes us to the key problem with the Young Turks, and why they ultimately failed to save the Ottoman Empire. They believed that all the old problems, trying to have a multinational empire while being patriotically Turkish, fixing the economy, rebuilding military strength, the problem with the minorities, 
would all be fixed by representative governments. They assumed this would be the end, rather than the means. They thought giving the minorities some seats in an assembly would be enough to mollify them and make them want to be Ottoman, rather than their nationality. Rather than listening to their problems. This was a huge mistake. The reformers were unwilling to compromise on anything, and soon became heavily divided between liberals and young Turks. The liberals wanted a federal approach to empire, for regional independence to some extent, and tolerance for the nationalities under a grand cosmopolitan Ottoman Empire. The liberals were pro-British, and wanted to side with Britain in the factionalism that was dividing Europe in the early years of the 20th century. On the other hand, the Young Turks were much more focused on Turkish prominence within the empire, if there should even be an empire at all, and sought to side with Germany in the coming war. The person who sought to gain the most from this squabble was the ever eager to keep his power, Abdul Hamid. He launched a coup against the CUP, killing several of their members, including the Minister of Justice. The CUP struck back, and the army stationed at Salonika, led by Mahmoud Sharif Pasha and his chief of staff, the young rising star Mustafa Kemal, marched on Constantinople. Abdul Hamid found himself isolated, and was deposed in favour of his brother, crowned as Sultan Mohammed V. Rather than being a fierce autocrat, as his brother was, Mohammed was aged 64, and was very mild. He was quite happy to be a constitutional monarch. This is the point where the CUP really began to take control, and tried to solve the empire's problems. They sought to do this by modernising, but the CUP failed completely at trying to do this. You'll shortly see in the next episode how to modernise, as Ataturk will be much more effective at it. You see, if you want to modernise, you need to break with your past. The CUP wanted a modern secular state, but were unwilling to lose their heritage. They took a vague middle route that pleased no one. They tried to modernise, but failed to change any of the fundamental underpinnings of the Ottoman Empire, a profoundly Muslim state. They wanted equality between Muslims and non-Muslims, but this couldn't happen while they maintained Islamic law, Shira law, and they didn't remove the veto of the Sheikh al-Islam. Legal progression was hampered. They faced the same dilemma as to what type of state the Ottoman Empire should be, or if it should be Ottoman at all. They wanted to keep the empire, but at the same time prioritise the importance of Turks and of the Turkish heartland, Anatolia. They wanted to make reforms to the social and political systems, but were unwilling to change the status quo. This fundamental question, what nation would they be, is still being grappled with today. 
Individuals change, but people don't. They could not have things both ways. And in a secret speech to the Salonika CUP in the summer of 1910, Talat Bey said that the constitution theoretically created equality between Muslims and non-Muslims. But they knew that this was an unattainable ideal. Perhaps I'm being too harsh on the CUP. As Ernest Jask said in 1944, to prove successful, the young Turkish revolution needed 10 years of peace. Instead, it got 12 years of war. The following years are incredibly interesting, and I wish I could go into more detail. But I don't want to give you a history of World War I. We need to make some progress towards the Arab Spring, without me talking for five hours about detailed troop movements and diplomacy in the Ottoman Empire. So, here is the quick version. From 1910 onwards, things became a series of disasters for the Ottomans. In 1911, they were invaded by Italy, who took control of Libya and Tripoli, pushing the Ottomans completely out of Africa. Next, in a series of Balkland wars, they lost much territory. In 1913, Albania became independent, and their control in Europe was pushed back to the area around Constantinople, essentially the borders of modern Turkey in Europe. Taken was the second city of the empire, Salonika. This was a huge blow. In these years, three figures were ruling the empire. Enver Bey, Talat Pasha and Jamal Pasha. Enver was pro-German, out of the military help the Germans had given them, while the Pashas were pro-British. Britain was very reluctant to make an alliance with the Ottomans, though the Ottomans tried many times. Simply put, the British felt their alliance with Russia safeguarded their interests in the region. They would need to look somewhere else for the protection they felt was needed. Enver was convinced Germany would win the war. And against Germany's better judgement, the two entered into a secret alliance in the summer of 1914, allowing the Ottomans to remain independent. If Russia didn't intervene in the Austro-Serbian crisis, just breaking out, as the Austrian Archduke Franz Ferdinand was assassinated. As the crisis escalated across Europe, Germany poured men and ships into Constantinople, fearing that the Turks would be a burden in the alliance, which was revealed to the world when the Ottoman Empire declared war on the Allies on the 5th of November 1914. The Germans feared that their Ottoman allies would be a drain on resources. It was thus a very pleasant surprise for the Germans to find the Ottomans heavily contributing to the war effort. Germany sent commanders to help improve the Ottoman military, and they fared very well. They fought a long battle against the Russians in the Caucasus, 
this was a brutal battle, and would, according to some, lead to one of the worst atrocities in world history. The story goes that fearing that the Christian Armenians would be a fifth column and aid the invading Russians, they were moved about, sent on death marches, left to die in concentration camps, or just outright butchered. It is estimated that between 1915 and 1923, one and a half million Armenians were killed in a horrific act of genocide. An incident that is still incredibly controversial today. The events have been recognised as a genocide by the European Parliament. A number of countries from around the world, including France, Germany, Russia, Canada, Argentina, most of the states in the USA, and is referred to in several US official state documents, and by then-President Ronald Reagan, though Turkey vehemently denies the claims. I'll let you decide what you think of this particular event, though I happen to think most likely it did take place. As Russia pulled out of the war in 1917, following its revolution, the Ottomans won this front. It had been a huge drain on resources, as the Russians had gotten the better of them for much of the war, and prevented them from getting an advantage from any other theatre. They had success in the West, to some extent, and with the help of rising star Mustafa Kemal, they would push back the British at Gallipoli. They would fare less well in the South, as the Empire was attacked by Britain. They tried to cause dissent within the Empire, and used Hussein bin Ali, the Sharif of Mecca, to provoke an Arab revolt. In return, Sharif Hussein was to be recognised as the king of an Arab state, the Kingdom of Hejaz. While this kingdom would prove short-lived, and would be annexed by the House of Saud, rulers of the state that would become Saudi Arabia, his children would be made kings in their own right, becoming rulers of the newly created states of Transjordan and Iraq, but that is for another day. A failed attempt by von Krestenstein to take the Suez Canal in 1916 created the opportunity for a British counter-attack. Led by General Murray, they soon pushed the Ottomans out of Sinai and were at Gaza by December. Murray had difficulties throughout early 1917 and was replaced in June by General Allenby. Allenby was a brilliant commander who restored morale and by October was pushing towards Jerusalem taken on December 9th. He would hold station for the winter, and most of 1918, but in September launched a devastating campaign, which would capture Damascus on October 1st, and Aleppo on the 26th of October. As soon as the war had started, an Indian brigade landed at Basra, and began to push north. This push would eventually take Baghdad, in the March of 1917. 
and would continue pushing to arrive at Mosul. By the end of the war, the Ottoman military had collapsed and the British were on the border of Anatolia, while Anatolia itself was in chaos. The international community was deciding what to do in 1918 and 1919. It was decided that they would strip all territory outside of Anatolia from the empire and place it under the mandates, which we shall cover later, leaving the question of what to do with Anatolia. The Kurds and Armenians wanted independence in the east. The British, French and Italians were all on the borders with armies. The Greeks were invading and taking the west coast. The Turkish government was heavily divided in an Ottoman Constantinople. It looked like the country would be broken up. At this moment, in 1919, Mustafa Kemal, who we have mentioned before as a member of the CUP and for his command at Gallipoli, was sent to inspect the army units in Anatolia to get the troublesome general out of the capital as much as anything. From this position, Mustafa Kemal would defy all odds to become Ataturk, the father of the Turkish nation. We'll find out just how he did this next week. If you've enjoyed the show, you can visit us online in all the places I mentioned last week. The website, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, or email. Another thing you could do is leave an iTunes review. Leaving reviews, particularly written ones, has a huge effect on the show's ranking in iTunes, which is where most people listen to the show. I'd like to send out a huge thanks to Andrew Mentz, Jordan Harbour of the Twilight History Podcast, Mad McRae, Brago24601, love the Les Mis reference by the way, Micus2053, and Telemarcus LLC for being so on the ball and incredibly kind for leaving some really lovely reviews so early on in the show's life. I hugely appreciate it, and if you have a spare five minutes, it would mean a lot if you could do it too. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next week. Allah.